Mark 7, verses 1 uh, through 23. This is the ever-living and abiding word of God. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him from within, out of the heart of man. Come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray uh, for his help this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can on this Resurrection Day on this day, as we also remember wonderfully the coming of the Lord Jesus in his birth, Lord, that we can turn to the, to the word of you, our God, uh, and not to the words of men, uh, knowing that you have spoken to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take these words uh, this morning and apply them to us, Lord, that we might see something of the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you are ever uh, visiting Iceland over Christmas, uh, beware. Uh, Icelandic kids don't just get one Santa Claus. Uh, They get 13 mischievous trolls roaming the country in the two weeks before Christmas. Uh, Like Snow White's seven dwarves, each of the 13 Jólosvinar, that is Yule lads, has his own personality, including doorway sniffer, spoon licker, sausage swiper, candle stealer, curd gobbler, and the ominously named Window Peeper. 
Uh, each takes turns, apparently, visiting children who leave shoes in their bedroom window, dropping off presents for the good uh, and depositing rotten potatoes for the bad ones. Planning a trip to Italy, perhaps, uh, next Christmas. Beware. Italian Christmases are celebrated with a wine-drinking witch. Twelve days after Santa's visit, families across Italy leave out a glass of wine and a plate of sausages uh, for La Bafana, who pops down the chimney on her broomstick. According to folklore, this old woman rejected an invitation from the wise men to follow the star and was so devastated about missing out, she spends every Christmas time gliding across the country searching. Along the way, she gives out, you guessed it, presents yeah. to good kids and coal uh, to naughty ones. Tradition, 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 passed down from generation to generation. We all have them. Uh, what tradition are you passing down uh, this Christmas? Words about Jesus are spreading across the land in Mark Seven Word about him, uh, who he is, what he's done. We recently saw 5,000 men miraculously fed by the Sea of Galilee. And as they go home with their wives and children, word spreads across the land. Jesus, who we found out in the Gospel of Mark, he's Lord of creation. He's Lord over evil, demons. He's Lord over sickness. He's Lord over death. The last time we saw that he walked on the water because he is Lord of land and sea. And as we left uh, the Gospel of Mark last time, we saw that people were on the shore beginning to recognize him. They'd seen him before. Uh, they'd heard his words. They'd seen what he'd done. And they're running throughout the region at the end of Mark 6, where they live, gathering up all those who had it bad, all those who were sick and needy, calling them to come to Jesus. And in some case, they would just carry them to Jesus themselves. You've got to come. Uh, and we will take you to him to be made well. And they do. At the end of Mark 6, and many come to him just touching the fringe, the edge of his garment, and touching him by faith are made well. But as we've already seen in the family of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded in prison to please a wife who was furious at John for rebuking them for their sin, we also know that the coming of Jesus... Uh, are, and the followers of Jesus who seek to live for Jesus are not always welcome any more than the announcement that the men of the East were seeking the one who was to be born king of the Jews pleased Herod the Great. In fact, it troubled him. It made him very uh, angry, actually. Uh, Herod the Great, father of Herod Antipas, because he eventually had all the young boys in Bethlehem to and under slaughtered in order to destroy Jesus. He could not have another king besides himself. And so as the word of Jesus and his followers, his words, his works spread throughout the countryside, there are some who hear of him and what's going on who are becoming quite suspicious. They're coming kind of agitated. They're kind of even opposed to him and they, they want to find out more because they're not all that pleased with what they've heard about Jesus. And they're particularly concerned about their... Uh, tradition. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, verse 1, with some of the scribes who come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And then Mark tells us as an aside, which reminds us he's writing mainly to Gentiles as he explains this practice. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat 
unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that is, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? The traditions here, they're called uh, the traditions of men, the traditions of the, the elders. Everyone has traditions. Every nation has traditions. Every church has traditions. Every family has traditions. Every person has traditions. Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives us this definition of tradition. Simply the handing down of information, beliefs, customs by word of mouth or by example from one generation to another without written instruction. Cultural continuity in social attitudes and customs and institutions. That is, says Merriam-Webster, a characteristic manner or method or, or style. So the basic idea here of a tradition is that it's uh, uh, basically an, uh, an oral tradition, something handed down as a standard for our thinking and behaving and living. So we speak today, perhaps, of the conservative tradition, the liberal tradition, an American tradition, uh, a Christmas tradition, uh, and traditions are, are legion. Uh, think of uh, Fiddler on the Roof, book written 1964 by Joseph Stein, later made into a famous musical story about a poor Jewish milkman named Tevi who lives in the small village of Anatevka, Russia. Story about a community that's about to change, uh, but Tevi is trying hard to maintain his traditions. Problem is, he's being challenged by new ways of doing things, and he has five daughters who, as daughters do, have thoughts different than his own. And at one point, Tevi says, a fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? We say because Anatevka is our home, and how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition. Tradition. I'm not going to sing. Tradition. 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 He goes on, he says, because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you. I don't know. Uh, but it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Well, the Pharisees, of course, and scribes had a tradition, too. Many, actually, Jesus tells us, uh, of which one is described in verses 2 to 4. And because Mark describes it again for us, we know Mark's, he's, he's really looking at, at Gentiles here. He wants them to know what this practice is all about. It's about washing your hands before you eat. They say, oh, oh, yeah, oh, I know this tradition. Our family had that tradition, too. My mom would say the same thing. You know, wash your hands before you eat. Was my mom a Pharisee? Uh, no, no, that's not what's going on here. Uh, hold on. This is not washing to get the dirt off your hands simply from working in the garden or playing outside. This is a, this is a religious, ritual, ceremonial washing of your hands that's loaded with a spiritual significance. Because at the marketplace, uh, you may have bumped into some Gentiles and... Uh, Marketplace, remember the same place where Jesus went and all who came to him in the marketplace were healed? Here the Pharisees say, well, in the marketplace you've got folks who are Gentiles, and so just in case you bumped into some of those folks, 
um, instead of placing a blessing upon them or making them well, the Pharisees and scribes were concerned that you will be defiled and made unclean by, let's say, analyzing a, a pear or apple to buy that a, a Gentile may have handled before you. Or when you're about to use a pot or a pan or sit on a chair that some ungodly Gentile may have recently touched, you need to ceremonially uh, cleanse it before it would ever touch your lips or come into contact with your body or go into your stomach. Oh no. Why would you do that? Well, to demonstrate that you, unlike them, are holy to the Lord. This is known as the tradition of the elders. What they've always customarily done... And what has distinguished them in the past and what they hand down to others. This is a matter of religious obligation and you are duty bound to follow. It's a matter of binding the conscience. And if you don't follow this tradition, you will be judged. We are not, mind you, talking about the law of God, which Jesus, we know in the scripture, always obeyed. Mark clarifies it for us. This is the tradition of the elders. And these Pharisees and scribes notice that followers of Jesus don't do as they do, and this causes them great consternation. And their main concern is, why aren't your disciples walking in this way? Why are they not walking according to the tradition? Why are they eating with defiled or dirty, unclean hands? And implied towards Jesus is, why are you doing so yourself? And teaching them likewise. Are you not concerned about holiness? Are you not concerned about godliness? I mean, what kind of trouble, Jesus, are you trying to create here, spreading this kind of teaching around the countryside? Well, they're pretty worked up. They're concerned. Have you ever been offended by someone not following the tradition? I remember a Christmas family gathering many years ago. I'm the youngest of ten, as you know. Uh... We had plenty of traditions growing up. When we gathered the clan for Christmas, we had about, at times, at our height, 40 or 50 people. Uh, we had our meal, exchanged some gifts, would sing some hymns. Well, one year, my sister had gotten married, and there was a new son-in-law joining the gathering. He was not one of us. Had a very different background, uh, but he was a Christian. Well, when we uh, went to sit down at our chairs that Christmas, he had went around the tables and placed gospel tracts on everyone's chair. You know, like Bible booklets calling to faith and repentance. Everyone's chair, including my mother. <laughs> my brother, who's a pastor. And that was not our tradition. We grew up in a Christian home, but we didn't go around leaving gospel tracts. What did he think we were? It's just, it's just not done. Well, the fact is, the Bible speaks about good and bad tradition. There is good tradition spoken of in places like 2 Thessalonians 2.5. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, says the Apostle Paul, that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 1 Corinthians 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brothers... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. This is called the, this is called the apostolic tradition. That is simply what we have seen, heard, and received uh, from the apostles 
the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, that tradition which is now written down in the Word of God. Uh, All that which is in accord with that, says the Apostle Paul, that apostolic tradition, that is pleasing to the Lord. Whatever is in harmony with it, agreement with it, leads to a firmer grip and love for that apostolic tradition is good. But there are other traditions which are not good. And here in this passage, Jesus helps us make the distinction. Jesus points out for us at least two things for us to help us. First of all, there's a kind of tradition... Something that's passed down from one generation to the next that supersedes or supplants or ends up taking the place of the Word of God. This is seen in a series of statements Jesus makes in verses 8 to 13, with each statement growing in intensity as their commitment to tradition, these Pharisees and scribes, is contrasted with their commitment to the commandments and the Word of God. First of all, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Leave there means abandon, disregard. So they leave, abandon, disregard the commandment of God. They hold to means to powerfully grip or to keep carefully and faithfully the tradition of men. This is the kind of language of marriage. Think here of the marriage bond where we're called to leave our parents uh, and cleave to or be bound to or cling to a husband or wife. So they were leaving the commandment of God, and clinging to embracing their tradition. That's the first thing. Second, Jesus says in verse 9, He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That is, they do away with, they nullify, in other words, they make of no account the commandment of God, as if it didn't exist, and establish, that is, build up, make firm their tradition. The fine way that Jesus uh, alludes to here of rejecting indicates that some thought has gone into this. The word fine, same word used of Isaiah prophesying well in verse 6. Well or finely did Isaiah prophesy. There Jesus means that positively. Isaiah said this well, excellently. Here he means it sarcastically of the Pharisees and scribes. You've got a fine way of making it as if the word of God doesn't even exist but establishing your tradition. In other words, they work hard at, how can I get out of the commandment and root our tradition in its place? Third, uh, Jesus says they end up making void the Word of God. Verse uh, 13, thus making void the Word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. They make void the Word of God. That is, they deprive of force and authority. They invalidate the very Word of God and instead hand down their tradition. Till at last, Jesus says, the Word is functionally, practically, non-existent, and what is passed on to the next generation is not the Word, but the traditions of men. And so we have many buildings in America with a church on the sign outside. But inside... There's no word, but lots of, lots of traditions of, um, of the past. You get the picture here. Jesus is saying they're zealots for their own laws, but neglectful of God's law. Now, this is opposite to what we are typically told about Pharisees. Jesus is saying here they did not care too much about the word of God. They cared too little. 
and substituted their own in its place. Because you will never be without law. The question simply is, is it God's law or God's word? Or is it man's? Man's tradition was enthroned. God's word was dethroned. The example Jesus gives is care of parents in verses 10 uh, and 11. For Moses said, verse 10, honor your father and your mother. That's pretty clear. Uh, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. There are severe consequences to disobedience to God's law. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, a promise to this is devoted to the Lord, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So what's happening here is, uh, you could say, mom and dad, I was going to help you out, but I've dedicated this money to religious purposes. They'd say, it's, uh, listen, mom and dad, it's devoted to the Lord. We find out they, they wouldn't actually have to uh, give it away. All they would have to do is simply say, it's devoted to the Lord. And sorry, there's none left over for you. Sorry, can't help. In other words, I'm professing to be devoted to the Lord, but I'm not going to obey the Lord's command. Now, of course, free will offerings are great. You say, I want to devote this to the Lord. Voluntary sacrifices are wonderful. But not when they are used to avoid obeying the clear command of God, says Jesus. Jesus says, commands you, God commands you to honor your father and mother. This is not an option. And don't try to get out of it, Jesus says, and weasel your way out of it with excuses, even with the plausible sounding, uh, religiously phrased excuses, because you're living as if my word holds no authority in your life and the word of men is supreme. And sadly, says Jesus, he could go on. Many, many, many such things you do. This is bad. Tradition. That is, traditions that take priority in your life, in my life, over, says Jesus, the Word of God. Have you ever absented yourself from the worship of the living God? That your elders have called you to worship the living and true God and Jesus Christ because He is the King worthy of worship? Have you ever absented yourself from the worship of, of this God because of a family tradition? Say, I can't come to worship. We've got... We've got a family gathering, you know, can't, I, I don't have time, can't do that. Um, which uh, do you more often say to yourself, well, we've never done it that way before, or how can we do this in a better way for the glory of God? Which do you more often say? Do you find yourself explaining away, rationalizing away the commands of God to justify your disobedience? That's what they were doing here. Are you more passionate about celebrating and performing and participating in all the cultural expectations regarding Christmas and Easter than you are celebrating and participating in the commanded weekly worship on the Lord's Day of the resurrected Lord? Uh-oh. Have you left, rejected, made void the commands and word of God in order to hold to and establish and hand down the traditions of men? Our Westminster Confession of Faith has a beautiful chapter entitled of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. This is all about liberty. It says this, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of conscience, that is a sense that you have to, 
is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. We believe that we are not to be enslaved by the traditions of men, the commandments of men, and let go the commandments of God. No. This is not far from us. During the worldwide uh, challenge and conversation regarding COVID, um, did, it ever, did it ever strike you as strange, as it struck me as strange, that people in the church could be more, not in the world now, I'm not talking about the government, I'm talking about people in the church, could be more zealous and passionate and absolute and unbending regarding their view of the COVID virus than any of the commandments of God. Oh, they were sure about COVID. Not so certain about the Word of God. Did it ever strike you as odd that people would take the latest pronouncements from a politician or the latest blog or news flash or scientific study on either side of the issue as absolute truth by which everyone must bow their conscience while leaving, rejecting, neglecting the absolutely authoritative Word of God? Ask yourself, what held more authority in my life during that time? Wear or don't wear a mask? Or hear and obey the Word of the Lord? This passage is for us. For the Christian, that which binds our conscience is not and may never be the traditions, commandments, and doctrines of men while setting aside the word. No, no, no. Jesus implies the opposite must be the case. Hold to the commandment. Hold to the word of God. Establish the commandment. Establish the word of God. Hand down the word of God. Not your tradition. That's the way of blessing. That's the first problem. Their uh, man-made traditions were superseding, uh, coming above the word, and the word was let go. That's not even the most serious thing. Second problem with the traditions of men is not only do they tend to supersede and supplant and overtake the word of God, uh, they also misdirect our hearts away from true worship. So they're all frustrated. They come to Jesus. You're really sinning here. What's going on here? Why are you, why are you yourself sinning, uh, eating with defiled hands, teaching others to do the same? In verse 6, and he said to them, well or finally excellently did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines or teachings the commandments of men. The problem with the traditions of men and the traditions of the elders here in Mark 7 is that they give the appearance of having a religious concern. They give the appearance of a desire to honor God. They give the appearance of an act of worship. They give the appearance of a concern for holiness. They give an appearance of concern for others, not defiling themselves or making themselves dirty with sin. But Jesus says, despite the appearance, Jesus says the reality was altogether different. 
The word hypocrite, as you may know, literally means one who judges or one who makes determinations or decisions from behind a mask. It's a word that would be used of an actor on the stage. That is simply someone who hides their true intentions, their true judgments, their true determinations uh, behind a, a mask so others can't see it. Jesus says their lips, what you see on the outside, they spoke of honoring the Lord, but their heart was far from Jesus. Far from here means to hold off from. Like that. Keeping oneself at a great distance from someone else. To be away. Absent. Distant. The picture here of Jesus simply says, hearts for each other draws you close. Hearts held apart from one another keeps you away. Imagine this Christmas meal that you have today or tomorrow, all the family's home. What would you think of a family that sat as far away as possible from each other? One in this room, one in that room, one in the other room? You'd say, are you a family? Do you have any love for each other? Why are you physically distancing yourself? From each other. That was COVID. That was the state saying, boy, you Christians need to be apart. And I hope you wept as we did in California. You can't come close. <laughs> right? That's what Jesus is saying here. Lips that honor, but spiritually inside their heart was as if, oh, I don't want to get close to you, Lord. And certainly not, certainly not my heart. It's this, it's, it's taking the words of a hymn. Oh, so many glorious hymns around Christmas. It's taking the words of a hymn on your lips, but thinking about how much grass that you could be mowing at home. Oh, boy. So much grass. Well, not now. It's winter. Um, no snow to plow either. But there's lots of things that you could be doing at home. It's hearing the Bible reading, but counting the crease lines in your folded hands. I've done it. <laughs> it's about looking at the minister. Opening and closing his mouth while mentally writing your shopping list for those last minute Christmas gifts. Oh, I gotta get out. Can't. Oh, it's too late. It's sitting as still as a ten ton piece of granite, appearing to give rapt attention to the Word of God while actually being asleep with your eyes open. A heart, a mind, as one once said, in a galaxy far, far. Away. What does Jesus think of that? He says their worship was vain. Their worship was empty. Their worship was nothing. A puff of wind. And what they taught as doctrine, that is as truth, was actually the commandments or the inventions of men. And Paul refers to this in Colossians 2.23. He says, as human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. A do-it-yourself religion. We love that in America. Do-it-yourself. And a do-it-yourself religion. But says Jesus, they are of no value at all in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is the sinful nature. This is of no spiritual value at all, says Jesus. It's worthless. What was their problem? Jesus described it fully. 
in verses 14 to 23, he just says defilement, being dirty, sinful, unclean, is not, says Jesus, ultimately about what goes in, but what comes out. Food can't change the heart. Defilement is not ultimately physical, but moral and spiritual. And Mark adds, by the way, in verse 19, Jesus declares right here, all foods clean. Even as the Lord would speak to the Apostle Peter in Acts 11.9, what God has made clean, do not call common. The dietary laws of the Old Testament are not for Christians today. Why not? Because the ceremonial food laws of the Old Testament are all fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Those laws were always meant to point to the need of God's people to be separate, not ultimately uh, because of what they ate, but because of who they, who they belonged to. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defies, defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts and that terrible list that follows. Which is simply to say, Jesus is saying to these folks and to us, you're barking up the wrong tree if you think that being religious and being holy and being godly and being a Christian and being pleasing to the Lord or living a life that's honorable to the Lord is all about externals and formality and appearance and showing up or being there, how you look, what you appear to be, how well you speak theology, drop a few Bible words, talk the talk, know the lingo, call upon your connections, history with the church, a denomination, a family. If you think the heart, says Jesus, of the matter is all that is outside you and that is all you're concerned to clean up and have washed and presentable to the Lord, which you think you can do yourself. And by your own efforts, self-made religion. Oh, says Jesus, you've missed the Gospel. And it's all, he says, in vain. Let that soak. Don't run over that. Let that soak in. A heart, you know, all you can get all the external ducks in a row. But if your heart, says Jesus, is like, like this to Jesus, it's all worthless. Don't come. Don't come. Don't come to church. It's worthless. It's vain. It's vanity. You've missed Jesus. You've missed, as they say, the reason for the season. You may sing Christmas carols until you're blue in the face, as some do. <laughs> but if you don't understand and believe and welcome and embrace Jesus within, within your mind, uh, within your heart, within your family, within your home, within your life, you've missed the good news of Jesus. And worse, you're still lost in your sin. Because that sin comes from within. And it's only Jesus that can cleanse within said Jesus in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. John 5, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You, you can be all about Bible study, uh, and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory, says Jesus, from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. But for believers, Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who's been given to us. This is the believer. The sacrifice of God, said Psalm 51, are a, a, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God. You will not despise, said the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Said the psalmist, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And of course, God himself made this promise, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The question is not, are you in worship any given Lord's Day? The real question is, is worship in you? The question is not, do you celebrate Christmas once a year because it reminds you of the gift of Jesus, but do you celebrate the gift of Jesus throughout the year? Believers are not, first of all, concerned with putting Christ back into the cultural celebration of Christmas. Believers are, first of all, concerned with putting Christ back into our hearts where He belongs. As the one born, that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. In the 19th century, Christina Rossetti wrote a poem that's sung today as a Christmas hymn in the Bleakman winter. Two of the stands of this poem well remind us what the true message of Christmas is really about, what the best tradition surrounding Christmas must always be. Our God, heaven cannot hold Him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when He comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. What can I give Him? Poor as I am. If I were a shepherd, I'd bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I'd do my part. Yet what can I give Him? Give my heart. Said the proverb, my son, give me your heart. Friends, rather than vain worship, hearts far from Jesus, we long for true worship and hearts clinging to Jesus. Rather than leaving, rejecting, making void the Word of God, we hold to, establish, hand down the Word of God. The greatest gift you can hand down to anyone else as a tradition, the greatest gift you can hand down to your children is love for Jesus and love for His Word. Because unless uh, their hearts are for Him, everything else is in vain. And friends, rather than thinking our main problems, everything around us, above us, beneath us, or on us, which we can deal with ourselves, we think, we understand from Jesus that our main problem is within us and only God can cleanse us. Which is why the psalmist cried out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And rather than look to the traditions of men to find help and hope and joy in life and cleansing from sin, we look to the Word made flesh who has come to cleanse us within from all our true defilement, all our sin. Because the One who came at Christmas is the one who came to the cross and the one who came out of the tomb and the one who's coming again. Friends, the Pharisees and scribes never heard of William Cooper, the hymn writer of the late 18th century, but perhaps if they had, perhaps if they had, their hearts would have turned away from trusting in themselves to make themselves externally clean 
to trusting in the one who was born to save, who would make them clean within. As Cooper wrote, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Friends, may the redeeming love of Jesus, born, crucified, risen, to make you clean of all your stains within, be the theme of your heart this Christmas and the theme of your life till the day you die and go home to be forever with Him. May it be true for His glory and for our eternal good. Let's pray uh, together. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we uh, come to you at this time. Oh Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of your Son. But Lord, we pray that we would not miss Jesus, that we would not miss the Gospel, that we would not miss the good news, or that Jesus has come to cleanse us from all our sin, all those guilty stains. He has come as Lord. He has come as King. He has come, Emmanuel, God, with us. He has come as Savior. And so, Lord, we pray today that we would cling to your Word that you've revealed to us, and that we would give our hearts wholly and fully to this Jesus, who is Christ the Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing uh, together uh, in response, number 585.